Well, I'm going to start um, my sermon this evening with a, a number of quick-fire questions. And I don't want you to dwell too long on these. I'll explain what the purpose of them is in a moment. Why is it that you eat cereal for your breakfast? Why is it that you would put cow's milk on your cereal, but you would not think of putting sheep's milk on your cereal? Why is it that you wear a shirt and tie to work? Or why is it that you don't wear a shirt and tie to your job? Why do children go to school five days a week, not six or not four? Why might you advise a 17-year-old that they're a little bit too young to be getting married just yet? Why do you have a shower every single day of the week? Why do you always obey traffic lights when they're red, but you don't always obey the speed limit? Okay, there's the questions. Now, now, what's the point of me asking these questions? I, I hope, as I was asking them, you, you begin to, to realise that you've maybe not got a very clear answer for why you do or don't do each of those things that I've suggested. Now, it's not that there isn't an answer. There are good reasons why we do most of those things that I've mentioned. But the answers that we might give are certainly not the only available answers. They're not watertight answers. And those things that we do are not the only way things are done around the world today. And they're certainly not the only way things have been done throughout history. The point of me asking those questions was just to try and show you in a small way how the culture in which we live influences us in almost every single area of our lives. The culture in which we live influences us in in ways that we don't even realise at times. Now, just that very realisation, the influence of the culture, is hugely important for any Christian. You see, as believers, we want to be people who aren't led and, and, and dictated to by the world in which we live. We want to be people who have renewed Minds who have been transformed by those renewed minds that God has given us. We want to be people who have been led by the Spirit of God, not being led by the world around us. We want to be people who are becoming more like Jesus Christ, not people who are becoming more like the culture in which we live. So when we come across the verses that we read from today's reading, uh, and we're going to focus this evening on 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. When we come across verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. We can be sure that this instruction is not simply for, oh, it's for the new believers. Uh, it's for the people who've just started out as Christians. Or, oh, it's for the backsliding Christians, the people who are not doing very well. No, because of the pervasiveness of the influence of culture, because of the way the world gets at us in in almost every area of life, this instruction is relevant for each and every single one of us, whether you've been a Christian for six weeks or six decades. Now, first, let's get straight to the, um, the instruction. Let's understand first what we are being commanded to do. Chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, first off, that might strike you as a rather strange command. After all, wasn't it God who loved the world? 
For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. You'll know that verse, I'm sure. So what does John mean to tell us not to love the world? Isn't that somewhat contradictory? Well, it would help to to just spend a moment clarifying what John means when he talks about the world. Now, sometimes John, uh, and the the New Testament in general, will will use the word world to refer to basically all that has been created. The universe, the physical place in which we live, the earth in the same way that me and you might use the world. Christ Jesus came into the world, for example. But that's not the only way, and I don't think it's the the primary way. I don't think it's the most important way or the most regular use of that word. In the same letter that we're reading, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, John describes the world, the whole world, has been under the control of the evil one. And when you read the gospel, you hear Jesus warn the disciples that they are no, they no longer belong to the world. Now, when Jesus told his disciples that they don't belong to the world, it wasn't meaning they've suddenly become spiritual. They, they've suddenly become non-physical. Uh, they're just spiritual entities floating around in some kind of no man's land. That's not what Jesus meant. He went on to warn them that the world will hate them, just as the world hated Jesus. He must mean something other, therefore, than uh, the trees, the globe, the earth, the, the, earth the, uh, the sea, the land on which we stand. As we listen to the Bible, especially the Apostle John, as we, as we listen to him use the word world, we find that he doesn't simply mean the physical world in which we live. Instead, he means those aspects of humanity which are in direct and willful opposition to God. The world is the systems of humanity and society that are influenced and organized by the power of evil that are led by sin. The world, you could say, is every instance where the creation is turned against God. Uh, one author describes it, describes the world as being uh, anything which makes sin look normal and righteousness or godliness look strange and unusual. Now, it's important to be clear that we've got that understanding of what John means by the world. Because when he tells us not to love the world, if we've not got that idea of the world in mind, then we can make one of two rather big mistakes. The first mistake is that we take him to mean everything physical. We take him to mean do not love anything physical. Worldly pleasures, in some people's minds, become any pleasures. But that is not what John is getting at. And that's quite clear even from these verses, even if you've not done a little study of what he means by the world. Because he says in verse 16, everything in the world comes from the world. Everything in the world comes from the world. But where does, for example, beauty come from? Where does, for example, rest or music or or friendship 
or food or taste or sexuality or, or work, where do those things come from? They come from God. They're part of his good design for the world in which we live. And for many of those examples that I've just given, actually you can find them there in Eden. Just in those two short chapters we have of what it was like before the fall. And so, for example, to to enjoy good food or to spend a week on holiday together as a family or to to watch a film in order to relax or to listen to a variety of music, to wear jewellery and makeup to pay good money to study at a university, to play sports, to travel in the first-class carriage on a train. All these things are not inherently, necessarily, worldly. Now, they might be. They might become worldly, and we'll get to that shortly. But they're not inherently worldly. Just because they're physical doesn't make them worldly things. Not in the biblical sense, not in the sense that John is getting at. That's the first error, if we don't understand what John means by the world. We make everything physical. Uh, we, we ban everything physical. The other error is sort of at the other uh, end of the spectrum. The other error is that worldliness is limited to a certain list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. And worldliness actually becomes to mean almost nothing outside of this very specific list that we have. Driving a certain car, wearing certain types of clothes, watching certain films, getting tattoos, having sex outside of marriage. Worldliness becomes limited in some people's eyes to these very few specific things that a Christian must not do. You're fine so long as you don't touch anything on this list. And if you can keep this list of do's and don'ts, then you can be, you can rest assured that you are not a worldly Christian. It's as though every other action is on some kind of neutral ground. And don't assume that this type of thinking is relegated to the past, to the days when Christians would, would, would make rules about not going to the cinema or not being allowed to dance or having to wear a certain length of, of skirts and, and so on. We see it today, for example, when when Christians might be against gossip if it's gossip about celebrities, but they're quite happy to gossip, speak behind people's backs, spread rumours about those in their church or even those in their families. You see it again today when, when Christians would say it's wrong to be angry, meaning wrong to be angry at another adult, but it's quite fine to totally lose your rag at your own children or at people who are driving other cars on the road. This idea of of limiting worldliness to a specific set of actions is just as alive today uh, as it ever has been. Those are the two errors. Making worldliness everything physical or making worldliness a very specific list of things. But what does John say worldliness is? The world, John says, is quite easy to spot. And perhaps the world is closer to you than you might realise. Verse 16, John doesn't give us a list of things, notice, he gives us three characteristics of the world. It's marked by the cravings of sinful man, or literally the the lust 
of the flesh or of the sinful nature. The world is those instances where the, the sinful nature, the flesh, seeks out, strives, desires to take hold of the very thing that it wants for itself. And one of the, the defining marks of the sinful nature, uh, the flesh, is the tendency to want to exalt itself. The temptation that Satan gave to Eve in the garden was, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You could be up there with the best of them. You could be like God. And the goal of the sinful nature ever since that day has been, I will make myself like God. It, it grabs, it, it takes hold, it pulls towards self. If Christ-likeness is to love your neighbor as yourself, then to follow the sinful nature is to love yourself so much more than your neighbor. And the world is seen in every instance where we seek to exalt ourselves, either as individuals or as communities or as nations. The world is seen in, in mottos like, do what makes you feel good. Do what is right for you. Follow your dreams. Follow the inclinations of your own heart. And it leads to all sorts of other sins that the Bible warns against. Sexual lust, anger, rage, quarreling and bitterness, dissent, greed, and of course pride. All these are results of the sinful nature. And then it, John goes on, verse 16, so this is the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes. Now this is obviously very closely linked with the previous one. You've got the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. They're a pair working together. You could think of the lust of the flesh as being that which springs up from within us and the lust of the eyes as those things which are out there that we are able to look at, that stir up temptation within us, that are designed to uh, to titillate and tease and to draw us away. And of course, the obvious example of where where we are in danger of falling prey to the lust of the eyes is in the way we entertain ourselves, what we watch, what we read, what we listen to. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us, as Christians, that there must not be any hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality, of coarse joking or unwholesome talk coming from us. And as believers, don't you find that there's sometimes a tendency to add on a little clause to his word? Yes, there must not be any hint of sexual immorality, unwholesome talk, coarse joking in church on a Sunday. But when I'm with my very closest friends and my close family, then it's fine to do these things. We find it, we find his, his instruction so unreasonable, unrealistic. Why? Because we spend so many hours of our week feeding ourselves things that normalize unwholesome talk, coarse joking, sexual immorality, and the like. The world is marked out by the consistent temptation away from the righteousness of God and towards 
pursuing the lusts of the flesh. And the things that we watch, the things that we read, the things that we listen to are so often a gateway. They are, they are a delight to the eyes, as it were, a lust for the eyes to pursue those things. And then thirdly, John gives us the example of the boasting of what a person has and does. The, the boasting of life, who I am, who I have made myself to be, the things I have. And of course, the question here, uh, the example that, that springs to mind is our social media accounts. Now, again, a social media account is not inherently, necessarily a worldly thing to have or to use. But what are you using your social media account for? Is it to, as John describes, boast about what you have and what you do? Social media is not necessarily worldly, but it can so easily become worldliness to us because simply of what it's designed to do. Either through feeding that lust of the eyes or by giving us an outlet by which we can boast towards others. Look at me. Look at my family. Look at my weekend. Look at my holiday. Look at who I am, what I have and what I have done. Yeah, take care still, because because these words are written long, long, long time before social media was ever even thought of, let alone invented and popularized. That spirit of comparison, that spirit of boasting, is uh, it can work its way into a community, whether you're in the 21st century or the 1st century. Uh, boasting about uh, the wealth that we have, boasting about uh, the places that we sit in uh, in the church gathering, boasting about uh, the way we speak or the way we hold ourselves, boasting about the knowledge that we have, uh, all sorts of ways that we boast about who we are, what we have and what we have done. These then are the things that constitute true worldliness, not just a, a blanket ban on any anything physical, uh, not just a very specific narrow list of rights and wrongs, but, but a tendency, a, a characteristic marked out by proud boasting, uh, seeking to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And John instructs us believers that we should have no part in them. Do not love them. Do not chase after them. Why not? Well, John's got two reasons and neither of them are complicated. The first is because those things are passing away. Those things that the world chases after are passing away. Now, be careful because not not everything that passes away is worldly. My marriage, for example, will pass away. Marriage is not worldly. But everything that is worldly will pass away. When you stand at the judgment on the day that Christ returns, it will be of no value to you then... What clothes you were wearing today. When you stand at the judgment on the day that Christ returns, it will be of no value to you then that you watched the popular films that people are talking about in the office today. When you stand at the day of judgment, then it will be of no value to you that you were influential or had respect or had the most number of friends today. They will be entirely irrelevant as a means of measuring the value of your life. 
And the sad irony is that, that actually even those things that we place, that the world places value on for life, those things that the world is chasing after, don't just become valueless on the day of judgment. So often, so often they become valueless within days, weeks, months and years of us giving our all to chase them. The things that the world teaches us to measure our lives on will all one day pass away. Along with, according to verse 17, all those who, all those individuals who build their lives on them as a foundation. That's the first reason, because, because the world is passing away. The second reason is because to love the world, to chase after the things that the world loves, is to do the exact opposite of what we claim to be when we claim to be Christians. You'll get this from the from the tenor of, of the letter of 1 John as a whole. Let me just take you a couple of verses through. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. To be a believer is to be one who has fellowship with God. Chapter 1, verse 6. To be a believer is to be one who walks in his light, who lives by his truth. Or chapter 2, verse 6. To be one who walks as Jesus walked. To be a believer... Chapter 2, verse 5, is to love God. That could be, the, that could be a, a helpful single summary of what it is to be a believer. It is to love God, to truly love the true God. Yet, to love the world is to love those things which are directly and purposefully opposed to God. Thus, chapter 2, verse 15, if you love the world, you cannot love the Father. You're loving two opposite things. You can't hold them both together. John says, if you're loving the world, you're not loving the Father. And if you claim to be a believer, the very claim is that you love the Father. Now, at this point, I want to address a, a very, a very important concern. If you take seriously the pervasiveness of the influence of the world in which we live, if you're sensitive to your own tendency to at least follow the world in many areas, if you don't necessarily love and desire the world's uh, things, then it could be easy to conclude that we are those that John describes in verse 15. Those people that do not love the Father. And if we do not love him, then we are not his. We don't belong to Christ. It would be easy to conclude those things if you're sensitive to your own sin. But I want you to be careful. Yes, throughout 1 John so far, we have seen that he does give us a number of tests that we can use to work out whether we are true believers. But I don't think that in these verses, love for the world is given as one of those tests. Let me show you why. In, in, the, other, in the other test cases that John gives us, he's got this kind of formula that goes on. He says, if you claim this, yet do this, then your claim is false. So he says, if you claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, then you lie. You do not live by the truth. Uh, 2 verse 9 he says if you claim to be in the light but you hate your brother then you lie you're still in the darkness 
He sets up these comparisons by which we can look at our lives, assess ourselves and work out where we are on the comparison. In verse 15, he doesn't give us a comparison in that sense. He hits us straight off with an imperative, an instruction. Do not love the world. And think about this. Who is he giving this instruction to? He's giving this instruction to those people that he's just written to in verse 12 to 14. Those uh, those forgiven children. Those fathers who know the father. Those strong young men who have overcome the evil one. Those believers that John is confident of their salvation. He then says to them, do not love the world. Look at the stark jump between verse 14 and 15. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you. You have overcome. Do not love the world. There's almost an implied therefore sitting in that paragraph break. Now, that observation ought to be a a great encouragement to us. It was certainly an encouragement to me in my preparation. If you can see the ways that the world has influenced you in the past, the ways it still continues to influence you today, then that is not necessarily a reason to despair. It's not necessarily reason to conclude that your faith is empty and worthless. This is a challenge. This is an instruction that John gives to every true believer. And so he doesn't offer it as a test to see whether you really are one who loves God enough. In fact, he presents it as a challenge and a warning that only a true believer will take seriously. God's word is given to to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. And so if, despite your failings, you continue to strive to, to, to conform your life to the righteousness of God, if, despite your feelings, you are you are determined, you are resolute in seeking to submit to Christ in, in every area of your life, no matter how many second chances that takes you to achieve. If you persevere at relinquishing your supposed grip on your life and offering it instead to Christ, if you persevere at pursuing his purpose instead of your own sinful uh, lusts, then your keen sense of failure in these areas should do should do nothing to confirm uh, should should serve less to condemn you than it should to confirm the reality of your faith. If your failures cause you to grieve, cause you to be sorry for them, cause you to want to to start again and carry on, then it's clear that it's that it's actually your love for God rather than your love for the world that is causing you to hate the influence that the world has had on you. How, then, do we avoid loving the world? I just want to close with with two points, which at at first might seem like they're separate responses, uh, but I hope on further reflection you'll see how these two at least overlap, even if they're not exactly the same instruction. First, We've got to be ready to obey God's word. 
If we want to avoid loving the world, if we want to avoid being influenced by the world, we've got to be ready to obey God's word. To flee sexual immorality. To cut off our hand if it causes us to sin. To watch our life and doctrine closely. To train ourselves to be godly. We've got to be ready to to put specific concrete actions in place that will help us obey God. That will help us steer clear of the temptations that we know, that we expect will come our way. And if that means that you're going to be cancelling some subscriptions that you have, if that means that you might choose to to live uh, without the TV or even the internet, if that means that you are going to... uh, Stop watching certain films or or not finish that box set that you've already bought and that you're already halfway through. Then so be it. Those things weren't made and designed for godly living. They were made for the world. They were made for those who are in opposition to God. They were made for those. uh, they, They were made to satisfy the lusts of the eyes and gratify the sinful nature. And so it should be no surprise to us then if these things are leading us away from God, leading us to to, to accept things which would, would turn us away from the God that we claim to love. And if that is the case, then you've got to be ready to obey the word of God and and to shun them, to put them to one side, to ignore them, to cut yourself off from them in order that you might live in a way that pleases God, to walk in his light, to walk as Jesus walked. So that's the first part of the the instruction. We've got to be ready to obey God's word. Uh, And then finally, uh, we've got to love God more than the world. Uh, If we just left it there, uh, obeying, uh, have a look through your life, look at any way that sin creeps its way in, look at any temptation and, and make a list of rules that you're not going to do this, not going to do this, not going to do this. And the danger of that approach is that you might take a real good grasp on the the lust of the the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature, as it were, and the lust of the eyes. You you cut off every avenue, as it were, that sin can, can come and attack you from outside. And yet the danger is that in taking hold of those two causes, you then become one who boasts in what you have and do. Or perhaps more appropriately, boast in what you do not have and what you do not do. I am good because I have cut off these things. I am good because I have blockaded myself against the world. I am good because I do not love anything in the world in which I live. The way to fight the love of the world is not to stop loving. The way to fight love of the world is to love God more. Husbands, why is it that you don't go out and find a, a younger, prettier, richer uh, wife uh, to take, woman to take for yourself? Is it only because you know you're not really allowed? Or is it because you love your wife? You don't want to hurt her. You want to do what pleases her. You know the damage that it would cause her if you did that thing. Because you actually value and cherish your wife more than any other woman that you know. 
Mothers, why is it that you sacrifice your own time each day in order to prepare meals, uh, get clothes ready, uh, care for children, do their homework with them, uh, provide for the children in your family? Why is it that you do that rather than just sitting back and putting your feet up? Is it because you've got an obligation? Because your husband might give you a stern look if you, if you don't? Or is it because you love your children and you want what's best for them? And you want to please them and serve them and build them up and prepare them for, for a life of service? It's your love that motivates you to do that. It's your love that motivates you to, to keep going, isn't it? Believer. Why do you not love the world and the things the world chases after? Is it only because you're not supposed to? Is it only because there is a rule here laid down for us that we ought not to cross? Or isn't it also because you love Jesus more? You love the, 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 the promise of eternal life more than the promise of what the world is offering you for that moment of pleasure, that moment of glory. The way to fight the love of the world is not by stopping loving. It's by loving God more than the things that the world offers.